and welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, and I'll be your host for the day. There has been an enormous amount of conversation since the attack on October 7th about Hamas, what it is and what it represents. And one of the things that I have found challenging is that in what we could loosely call the kind of pro-Israel discourse, there's a tremendous focus on Hamas often in ways that I find obscure the underlying dynamics. It's almost sometimes as if like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict began with the creation of Hamas. And yet in more pro-Palestine circles, I often have found sometimes there seems to be a reluctance to discuss Hamas, as if they're irrelevant almost, because the underlying factors about Israel's treatment of Palestinians are all that one needs to know. So I'm really grateful today to be able to talk to two folks who have a kind of intimate understanding of Hamas's rule in Gaza, and I think are able to talk about the organization in ways that recognize its very, very serious problems and atrocities, and yet also can put it in a larger context. So we talk about Hamas in a really honest way, but not in such a way that obscures the deeper underlying dynamics in Israel-Palestine that have existed since long before Hamas was created in 1987. Our two guests are uh, Khalil Sayeg, who's a Palestinian political analyst in Washington, and Mohammed Shahada, who's also a political analyst. Both of them grew up in Gaza and so have a kind of personal experience with Hamas rule on the ground that many people in the United States obviously don't have. So Khalil, maybe I'll just start with you if you don't mind. And maybe I can just ask a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Gaza under Hamas, what they were like as a governing entity and how their actions and ideologies affected your life. Sure. Yeah. First of all, thank you, Peter, for having me. It's great to be with you and Mohammed. My story with Hamas and interaction with them started actually before they took power in 2007. I remember dealing with Hamas members in my school called Al-Kutla al-Islamiya, or not Hamas members, really members of the student association, and always had this sense for myself as someone who's tend to be more secular, happened to be born to a Christian family, that on the one hand, I felt always that they're the nicest people. They're very kind. You know, they would always like say salam alaikum when you when they walk into the school. They never really get angry or frustrated like the other kids. On the other hand, I always felt a sense in which there is a particular Islamization agenda that trying to push on everyone by them that also made me feel uncomfortable. I remember one of my neighbors, Muhammad, who happened to be a member of the military wing in Hamas, and I remember him being a nice kid in, in, in so many different levels. But on the other hand, he is a member of this group that I happen to disagree with very deeply. So the story started for me before Hamas took over. When Hamas took over after 2007, things have become different to me because at the beginning, we were wondering like, what, what Hamas would really mean. What does it mean to be a ruling party that had all these particular Islamist agenda, how much they would implement it? Would it be gradual? Would it be more forceful or whatever? There were so many questions about it. But to me, I'll tell one story that sort of symbolizes to me the, the frustration I've had with Hamas since the beginning. I remember I had to go to one of my schools, which happened to be government school. And at that time, Hamas has sort of controlled it. 
I remember Hamas replacing the national anthem with a song, an Islamist song. And to me, this sort of symbolizes the internal struggle for someone like myself, who happened to be a secular, but also a Christian and a Palestinian, that the very thing that I treasure is the Palestinian national theme to them has changed. That's sort of a small teaser on my sort of personal struggle, let's say, with Hamas. On the one hand, these very nice people, on the other hand, people who I disagreed with strongly ideologically. Mohammed, I'd love to ask the same question to you. What was your experience of interactions with Hamas and growing up under Hamas governance? Sure. Thanks so much, Peter and Khalil. So basically, my experience with Hamas before they took over government was this excluded persecuted minority, at least that's how they presented themselves. They couldn't meet in public, they couldn't organize their activities. They were not allowed to get any sort of Palestinian authority jobs. Even Hamas doctors were not allowed into the PA. And that sort of exclusion enabled them to harness it as an asset to present themselves as clean from the failures of the Oslo process. And the more Oslo failed, the more Hamas was catapulted to prominence on the street. There was another element to it that by virtue of their exclusion, they had credence to sort of be spoilers in the process. So the way that I remember that is when we try to travel from Gaza to Egypt in the early 2000s, every time the border crossing opens up, I'm not sure if it's Hamas in particular, but a Palestinian armed group would fire those improvised projectiles and never caused any sort of substantial damage, but it would immediately cause shutting down the borders. So this, the spoiling aspect was clear. But comes 2005, and that becomes a huge turning point when Israel pulls out of Gaza unilaterally. It was done in a specific way as number one, to humiliate the Palestinian Authority and to freeze, if not destroy, the peace process. So there were signs hung up on the streets that said, negotiations led us nowhere. Our arms liberated Gaza. And there were statements in Israel attesting to that nature of saying that we pulled out of Gaza for reasons of security that lent credence to Hamas's rhetorics. The other dimension of it is that the withdrawal from Gaza destroyed its economy because it was coupled with cutting the Gazan labor force from Israel. The plan was to cut it until it ceases completely. And the complicated overlaps between the Palestinian and Israeli economy means that it caused the worst economic depression in modern history that plays to Hamas's advantage. So we have elections 2006, and that's when Hamas campaigns cleverly, not on two-state versus one-state versus liberation, not on, quote-unquote, the monstrous Zionist occupation agenda. They campaign purely on economics and reform. So they say, look, the PA has become dysfunctional, incapacitated, and our economy is in tatters. We're going to fix all of that. Ismail Haniya would come to our neighborhood, move from home to home, and say, I promise I'm never going to have an office. My office is going to be the mosque. And Ahmad Bahar, who became deputy speaker of parliament, he would drive around in a, a Subaru from the 1970s, a very old vehicle, and would tell people, if you ever see me change that vehicle, know that I, I had a change of heart. I've been corrupted. I'm never going to change this. And it touched people's hearts in a way. It was a clever strategy. But as soon as Hamas wins, it becomes clear 
Hamas is politically inexperienced. They are the most fit of acquiring authority, but the least fit of exercising it because they didn't have experience with actually running the country. And as they jump into government, they make a lot of mistakes that they themselves admit later on. So, for instance, trying to monopolize power and trying to have a Hamas government and Hamas control on the PA, which later on they say that this was a mistake. We should have engaged and and drew partnerships with other groups, not necessarily Fatah, but the Popular Front, Democratic Front, all the other Palestinian groups that are under the umbrella of the PLO and Fatah under encouragement and influence of some elements of the international community, particularly the U.S. and more so Israel, they start to spoil and ruin Hamas's government. They start even creating a security force to undermine it. And what that meant for me as a child going to school, suddenly, as soon as you get off the bus to your school, you immediately hear gunshots and fire exchanges. And it sort of turns into this very dark and ugly episode of civil war for a few months that ends with Hamas's takeover on Gaza. So Hamas, after that, signifies four things to people in Gaza. A government, a militant wing, a political party, and a charity provider. They still maintain their charities that gave them eminence in, in the 90s and 80s. So basically, as a government, their performance descends into a form of autocracy, a very clear autocratic nature. They also display and exhibit signs of political inexperience in many ways. It always becomes a fight internally between the different wings of Hamas's political party. So there are the moderates, people that are sort of considered leftists in Hamas. There are sort of the hardliners, famous for anti-Semitic and lunatic trends. And there are sort of pragmatists in between, like Ismail Haniyeh, who we say he manages to hold the stick from the middle. He, he tries to appease everyone. And pragmatists in Hamas sort of work with what actually works, not what is ideologically valid. So ends justify the means, whether non-violence or violence, as long as you provide results. And yeah. it becomes a competition between these wings. To conclude with one sentence, Hamas did not achieve the economic reform or fight of corruption that they promised, but they achieved something alternative, which is restoring security to Gaza, something that they are very proud of. Before they took over, the Palestinian Authority did not have a mandate to maintain security in Gaza. So there were a lot of armed families and gangs. And Hamas goes out against those families immediately after its takeover in a sort of a bloody fight, disarms all gangs and groups and maintains a very solid atmosphere of security. But it comes at a price of the way that they exercise authority in an authoritarian fashion. Now, the last thing is the armed group that to people, it might be controversial how they act and the timing of their actions. So you would see a lot of protestation about why do they fire rockets now and what do we stand to gain out of it? But the existence of the armed group enjoys, to some extent, solid support. And the reason for that is people in Gaza see it as a deterrent to prevent Gaza from becoming a clone of the West Bank where settlers can sit entire towns ablaze and, and go shoot people and the army can raid people's homes and terrorize children in, in the night. So that becomes another asset that Hamas sort of plays on to obfuscate its other shortfalls in the government and its military actions.
Thank you. I wanted to pick up on this. So I think one of the things that people talk about in the United States a lot is asking how people in Gaza feel about the fact that Hamas has been launching these rockets. And then now after October 7th, done much more than launch rockets, done this ground incursion, which has killed lots and lots of Israelis. And then Israel's response is always just overwhelming. And, And now since October 7th, just utterly catastrophic. So I think many people you know, looking at this in the United States would say something like, aren't people in Gaza furious at Hamas for launching these attacks on Israel that then produce these military responses that kill so many ordinary civilian people in Gaza? Mohammed was suggesting perhaps it's not that simple in terms of the way in which people in Gaza see Hamas's violent armed actions. But but what's your sense? Yeah, this is a good question. And there is no really an easy answer because the Palestinian society is quite diverse politically, right? And people people think differently about these things. I mean, I agree with Muhammad in the sense that Palestinians generally tend to look at the idea of armed resistance, which for the last 20 years or so, Hamas has been the most associated with it. Before that, Fatah was the prominent resistance. Actually, a fun fact, before 19. 19- 87, when Hamas was established, actually Hamas has existed before, but in a different form as the Muslim Brotherhood branch in Palestine. And it was a joke in Gaza among like people like my father, who also actually was more associated with Fatah. He's like, these people are like the traitors who are not fighting. They're all about, you know, da'wah and preaching Islam. And they were making fun of them. You're saying they were considered not militant enough. Yeah. So the idea of armed resistance and that this is something positive on the Palestinian sense has been there all the time. And I agree with Muhammad in the sense that for the last 20 years, there was a sense in the Palestinian society, and I felt it actually, I was in the West Bank last year before Israel banned me from entering, and I was attacked by settlers on the way to Nablus, I almost got killed, and I felt like, wow, the Hamas appeal makes sense, at least in Gaza, I'm not worried about my father or my mother being killed in Gaza by an Israeli settler, so that appeal is there. But within the Palestinian political culture, there are people who would say, well, listen, Hamas has been waging war after war, bringing only destruction to Gaza, bringing about nothing positive out of it. Why shall I keep supporting Hamas? That's the people who are not really members of Hamas, etc. People who are identifying more with quote-unquote resistance or Hamas, the more war happens, the more they become more hawkish and they become more supportive of Hamas's militancy. So there is a nuance there. What is interesting, the opposition toward Hamas and toward even its attack on October 7th, it's significantly higher in Gaza than in the West Bank. Despite that the people in Gaza are living under a tremendous repression by the Israeli army and the war crimes that are happening right now, but people realize that perhaps the Hamas's way is not really leading anywhere. There's also growing frustration with the way it governed Gaza. I agree with Muhammad in the sense of that Hamas succeeded to an extent to limit crimes in Gaza, these gangs and families, but Hamas did it at a very high cost. They did it at a very high cost with the Palestinian blood. They did it at a very high cost within imposing an authoritarian regime where in Gaza, when you speak at your home, you're scared. Mukhabarat or Shabab al-Masjid or Hamas's other local youth in the area would listen to you and would complain about you. So the price was very high. Another thing that is important to mention, a lot of these gangs and families were actually associated with quote-unquote al-Muqawma, the resistance. So the idea of the BA dismantling these, it would be seen as the BA going after the resistance. Hamas didn't care about it because they had the mobilization, they had the legitimacy, and they didn't mind running a fully authoritarian regime in Gaza. 
something that the P8 in the West Bank are unable to consolidate power completely. For example, in Hebron, still the big clans have their guns and have their power and the PA is unwilling to crack down on them. Mohammed, since October 7th in particular, there's been a lot of comparisons made between Hamas and ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and often it's called a, a theocratic organization. I wanted to ask you, Mohammed, first of all, did Hamas impose Sharia law, like Islamic religious law, in Gaza? And how much of its motivation or its worldview do you think is fundamentally religious versus just another version of Palestinian nationalism? Uh, that's a very good question. To start with ISIS comparison, I would say in one word, it's, it's dumb. In another word, it's dangerously counterproductive. That's why you see Israel, for instance, around the time that they held negotiations with Hamas about the hostage release, they stopped using the word Hamas as ISIS momentarily because it reflected badly on them to be negotiating with ISIS publicly. But the reason why this is very damaging is because if you look at Hamas through a counterterrorism lens, then you should settle for no less than eradicating them completely, not a single Hamas militant should survive. And that's an impossible task as even Israeli General Yair Golan, who became a sort of a celebrity since October 7th, admitted recently in Haaretz that it's not practical or possible to destroy Hamas, even if you destroy them in Gaza, which means destroying Gaza itself because it's an embedded group within an urban space. They will show up stronger in the West Bank, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iran, in Algeria, and other places. So it's a very unpractical goal, and therefore the counterterrorism lens is very damaging. But on the comparison between the two, I'll start with the Sharia law aspect, because that's a very interesting one. In 2006, Hamas sort of implicitly promised its members and popular base, the Islamist part of the Palestinian society, that they would move towards implementing Sharia law, but they did not. As soon as they held government, they exercised authority in exactly the same way as Fatah in terms of sort of the secular nationalist identity. And that upset a lot of their members that defected and dissented in mass and formed their own Salafist jihadist groups. And Hamas went on the offensive in a very bloody and ugly way against these groups to kill it in the bud against its own former members. At some point, there was a mosque that this group has declared their own and, and their base in Gaza. Hamas went and raised the mosque to the ground and killing the leaders of that group while it was still small. And they regularly and routinely arrested people in Gaza who espoused the Salafist jihadist ideology. So in 2015, that's when it becomes most pronounced, ISIS tries to gain a foothold in Gaza and Hamas goes on the offensive to destroy any attempt in that direction, and they arrest any people that are sort of sympathetic to, to that group. On the other hand, the relationship between the two groups are very toxic. I think 2016 or 17, you can read it in New York Times, ISIS executing Hamas members in Sinai and going on the offensive against them, denouncing and condemning the group. And it was the other way around, as I mentioned, with Hamas arresting and shooting and killing ISIS members. It's not just domestic disagreements between what people would naively or superficially dismiss as jihadist groups fighting each other. It's a very deep issue because Hamas, once it was in government, it realized that rhetorics are easy and being in opposition is much easier than being in authority. And it had to run the sewage system, the health department, schools, etc. And that did not prove to be an easy task. 
which sort of in many ways humbled Hamas's aspirations to impose Sharia law if they had any at some point and sidelined any leaders that would call for this because it, it was not feasible. Thank you, Mohammed. That was very, very helpful. Khalil, I've heard you talk a little bit about the role that religious prophecies played in the thinking of some Hamas fighters and members. And I'm I'm curious just to ask you if you can speculate or imagine th- these young men, these young fighters who crossed that fence and then found themselves in southern Israel. And then some of them killed uh, soldiers, some of them killed civilians. If you can try maybe to us understand a little bit what their mentality might have been, what their ideology might have been, what they would have been told and how they might have seen this action. Because again, I think for many of us, beyond being appalled by the killing of civilians, it was just struggling to understand what would have been going through these young men's mind. Sure. Yeah. I think the important distinguish to make here and to understand is that there is a disconnect between many times the fighters, 21 years old or 22 years old or 25, and then leaders such as Ismail Haniya, let's say, or Khalid Mash'al, who, as Muhammad explained, tend to be pragmatic. And then you, you've got other leaders such as Osama Hamdan, who are really messianic in their views, and they believe in all the prophecies and crazy stuff. It seemed like the members generally tend to believe at some point, and the prophecy was that in 2022, the end of Israel will come. This is a prophecy based on quote-unquote calculation from the Quran that Sheikh Bassam Jarrar, who was a prominent member of Hamas in Ramallah. Another prophecy that was made by Ahmad Yassin, who is the founder of Hamas, claims that the end wouldn't come 2022, it will come 2030. So there is this messianic nature and beliefs among some of Hamas's lay members or members who are the military wing. And on the other hand, I think there is also the grievances. Uh, I mean, most of these people are refugees like myself who were kicked out from their home in 1948. And big part of where they were thinking and they were feeling as they are crossing the border is that we're back to Palestine, we're back to our land. And actually, a lot of these fighters and, and even also civilians were screaming as they're like crossing back the borders and saying, we liberated Palestine. They literally just believe that by the act of crossing and what they've done in the kibbutzim and the horrible killing, that they liberated the land, that it's theirs. They're going back and they're going to take it. So there's also a level of simplicity that to me, to be honest, I feel sad for these people. Obviously, what they've done is horrible. There's no justification for it. But on some level, imagine yourself born to this place for 20 years, you're under siege. And all what you hear from Hamas's members as a young person is that the prophet is going to be fulfilled. We're going to reconquer the land, that the enemy will disappear, etc. You're going to believe it. And to an extent, I think a mirror image of that is religious Zionism. They're really convinced that the prophecy will be fulfilled. Now, the difference is in religious Zionism, at least they have the power right now, right? But on the Hamas's end, every battle that happens, oh, it's close, we're getting there. But things are not moving on that quote-unquote prophetic direction. Well, October 7th, there are a lot of interesting dynamics about how it unfolded. There's one element with members and how they were able to conduct themselves this way. There's another question of how did Hamas's top leaders decide on this operation? And each one reveals a totally different universe. For the leadership, they went there not out of a strategy, but deliberately and precisely because they didn't have any strategy. 
it was basically a process of elimination of them saying that the peace process is a failure. It proved to be inefficient. It proved to be non-responsive and a non-starter to Netanyahu's government. Negotiations, even non-violence, any other alternative Palestinian strategy. Advocacy, that's diplomatic terrorism. Of boycott is economic terrorism. Construction is construction terrorism. And it goes on with any sort of Palestinian action at all being delegitimized, attacked, and banned. So rockets become sort of the exception rather than the rules. And when Hamas engages with them, it happens with a specific goal in mind to draw the attention of the international community because there's the impression as soon as rockets start, the international community starts running immediately to Gaza to try to restore the quiet and the calm and pacify the population again. And it's been very clear that that was the dynamic for the last at least 17 years. When rockets are not being fired, Gaza's forgotten. The international community pretends it's not there. But Hamas's leaders say that even that has failed. So that all of these failures lead up through a process of elimination for Hamas's leaders to say that we need to put all dicks on the card. Now with the group's members, why did they do what they did in that specific way? There are two main reasons from a Gazan perspective for that. Number one is that the blockade does not only dehumanize people in Gaza to Israelis, it also dehumanizes Israel and Israelis to people in Gaza because our only ability to conceive what Israel is, is pure, brute violence. It's the tanks, the drones, the soldiers, the fence. You saw a lot of people celebrating the collapse of the fence on October 7th out of sheer disgust and horror by the existence of that fence because if you try to get too close to it, you get shot by a sniper immediately. It symbolizes pure horror and violence. And that's what Israel becomes a symbol for the majority of people in Gaza, the younger generation that never stepped a foot outside, never had an interaction with it. So there was a dehumanization process of Israelis by the existence of the blockade that prevented people from interacting. The other dimension is people in Gaza seeing their lives being completely destroyed or not even being allowed to have lives for the last 17 years. So no past, no present, no future. You find young people our age in Gaza who reach the age of 35 without being able to afford to start a family and fall in love, to move out of their parents' homes, to get a job, to put food on the table, to contribute. Their daily life is pure shame because they have no purpose, no life, and no prospect of getting any. And that creates immense rage that on October 7th, some of the worst atrocities that were attributed to Hamas collectively if you look more closely at it, some of them were committed by non-Hamas members because once the fence collapsed, all other militant groups trust in. So, for instance, there were two verified incidents of beheadings. I've, I've seen the footage, I verified it. One was committed by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and one was committed by Kataib Mujahideen because, as Amira has said in an interview with Democracy Now!, she said that pressure must have been so monstrous to have enabled such monstrous attacks. So that's the other dynamic. Mohammed, I wanted to ask you, this is, I know, speculation because it's about the future, but do you have any thoughts about what kind of politics will come out of this catastrophic destruction that Israel is producing in Gaza? We've already seen that, I think Khalil was mentioning, the Hamas is more popular in the West Bank, a lot more popular, but not necessarily in Gaza, where it seems like its popularity it seems to be about the same. Let's say Hamas is deposed somehow, and some new force runs Gaza, whatever that is. What do you think the consequences for Palestinian politics will be? So basically, the way the things look, if Israel goes fully in with the concept that they are now propagating, 
with maintaining operation and freedom in Gaza, so being able to go in and out, even if they destroy Hamas completely. A single soldier going inside Gaza would push people in Gaza to create their own Hamas. Even if Hamas is gone completely, people in Gaza would have nothing to lose and would be so immensely traumatized that the, the sight of a single Israeli soldier or vehicle inside Gaza would push people to, to form their own armed resistance groups again, or even individually, what is referred to as, as honorable suicide or death by the hands of the army. And the other dimension is that now, Almost every single person I know in Gaza, or at least the people that I managed to get a hold of, had their homes bombed. A friend of mine had his home burned to the ground by soldiers. Way, way, way more vicious than an airstrike. And what that means for someone in Gaza to lose a home, these homes were built generationally. Not one person having enough wealth to buy a house. It's basically people that were kicked out in the Nakba, putting the first brick and then their children putting the other on top of it and then so on. Because the median income in Gaza would be annually about $1,200 in a whole year. And the house would cost around maybe $50,000. So it takes decades to build a home. And to have it destroyed, to have no prospect of getting a home again. I remember a friend in 2014, a classmate at, at my university. Every day he came there after his home was bombed by Israel. He was consumed by rage and pure hatred. To Hamas, to Fatah, to the Palestinian Authority, to Israel, the Egyptians, the Americans, the Europeans, whatever you name it. He would look us in the eye and say, every single one of you, after this lecture, you go to a home, you have a roof on your head. I go and sit on a piece of rock and wait in a tent until they build me something that never happens. So Israel has created enormous enmity with the population in Gaza. And you can take it for granted that Israel will not try to put a single shekel or dollar into fixing what they destroyed. My university was completely bombed. My high school, my elementary school, primary school, the shop where I go to buy groceries, the restaurant where I go to buy food, my family's home, every home of every single member of my extended and immediate families were bombed. There is nothing that I would recognize in Gaza if I walk down the street. There's nothing left. And if that remains so, the population already has nothing to lose and so much to gain from death, relief and just putting an end to the pain, being traumatized for so long in these last two months, being moved around like chess pieces. If Gaza, by the end of this war, is not opened back again to the world and the blockade is lifted, you're creating a way, way worse radicalizing environment than the one that led to October 7th. Khalil, I want to just give you the last word, just anything you'd like to add about the potential futures that come out of this. Truly, the situation is dire. I mean, I myself, too, lost friends. We lost our home. We lost everything. I mean, I was telling someone that my grandpa came in 48. He lost two of his jewelry shops in, in Majdal, and he lost his land and his private home there. And he worked hard to get a new shop in Gaza, and he worked hard to get home, and he worked hard to just rebuild our life. And my father continued this business. Now we lost the shop. We lost the home again. And it feels that we are back in 1948, and it's it's really hard. When it comes to the future, there are all sort of conversation about what future look like. There is talks about the PA being restored to Gaza. There are talk about Arab forces being there. Hamas continues to refuse these things. 
Interestingly, the other partner who refuses also the return of the PA or Arab forces is the Israeli government. Netanyahu yesterday just said there's no way on earth I allow the Palestinian Authority back. Now, the public opinion today shows that the support for Hamas in the West Bank is at 85%. In Gaza, is at like 51% or something. It's really low. The support for PA return in Gaza is above 42, which is really tremendous compared to the years before. So there is all sort of things are happening. Ismail Haniya, who's the head of Hamas, just gave a speech in which he said many things, among which is like, we we accept a political solution with Jerusalem as the capital. He was vague not to use two states or one state or anything, but just like a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital or East Jerusalem, he didn't mention it. The one thing I got from the message is emphasis Ismail Haniya was the following. There is no future or political configuration in Gaza in the future that does not include Hamas and the resistance. So Hamas continuously saying that any plan you have in this year or any plan you have in Tel Aviv or with Ramallah that does not include Hamas wouldn't work, wouldn't materialize. And one can translate it that there will be a spoiler that wouldn't allow it. It's very clear from the language that Hamas is unwilling to have any political configuration in which Hamas does not belong there. My personal opinion that Hamas, at least the political and constituous part of Hamas, should be part of any political future because they are part of the Palestinian people. But my opinion too, that I don't think Hamas, its military wing, should be allowed to continue to be in Gaza, giving the disastrous things that they have caused for for the Palestinians. And that does not mean that I I am against resistance as a concept, but I'm against the form through which Hamas conducts its own resistance. Khalil and Mohammed, thank you so much for such a rich conversation. I learned really a great deal. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened, that we hope you enjoyed this episode of On the Nose, and we'll see you next time.